last night we were talking about why bless Israel. You can be seated, by the way. Sorry. Why, why bless Israel? And I know you talked about it from the perspective of why is Israel important to God and why is it important to us as a Gentile church? But I also believe that Israel is important to Satan. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit why Israel is in the eye of Satan as well? Even though we don't want to focus on him, but our, we, he's our adversary, and it is important we know what he's up to, right? That, that's right. Mike, this is a great question, and I think the answer, the place that I would direct you to, by the way, hi, everybody, welcome. We're glad that you're here tonight, and obviously God has given us traveling mercies on the way in, and uh, we pray for him to do the same on the way home, amen? We're, we're, we're not used to snow in November. I, from Phoenix, Arizona, are not used to snow at all, but uh, uh, in answer to your question, uh, uh, Pastor, you're absolutely right. I think the place to go would be Genesis 3.15, where it talks about the seed of a woman. And uh, how many of you know that biblically it's the man who has the seed? So already we're looking at Genesis 3.15. It, it it's basically speaks of the prophecy of the virgin birth. And it also speaks about the war of Armageddon. It says, he shall bruise you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. When you break that down, it talks about the fact of a final war to come, where basically um, when it says he shall bruise you on the head, it means the seed of the woman, the one who is of the virgin birth, Jesus, is going to issue a fatal head wound against Satan. All Satan is going to be able to do is bruise him on the heel. And how many of you know a bruise on the heel is absolutely nothing? Satan can't keep him down. In essence, what I'm trying to tell you is if you look at this verse, it is a verse that basically says right in the beginning of Genesis, Satan, Jesus is coming after you. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why Israel is important to Satan. Because Satan, who desires to defeat Jesus, knows that Jesus is supposed to be coming back to Israel. So what better way to try to thwart that plan than to destroy Israel and not give Jesus a place to come back to? So that's the answer to the question, Mike. Very, very much appreciate you uh, asking that tonight. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back. You made it through the snow. It is, and, and uh, I think it's a little colder out there tonight than it was last night. Amen. But uh, I'm going to make it worth your while tonight. We'll put the title slide or the title page of uh, my teaching tonight up on the screen. Uh, before we get to it, remember how last night, by the way, I said last night would be a good note-taking message. Did you find that it was? Well, guess what? Tonight is going to be another good note-taking message. So, as, uh, and, and Pat, you've already got your pads, your pens. Uh, you'll definitely want to take notes on this. As you're getting those ready, a story to tell you, and I think this is a perfect story to tell in light of the weather. How do you pronounce that town in the UP? Is it called St. Ignace? St. Ignace. All right. The story goes like this. Uh, a, a husband and wife in St. Ignace are, are constantly traveling back and forth. They're business travelers. And, and all of a sudden, the snows come in November. But uh, fortunately for the, um, uh, for the husband, he has set up a business trip in uh, Miami Beach, Florida. And uh, so the snows come and he leaves. And his wife is actually going to be joining him down there the following day. So he gets down to his hotel room in Miami, Florida. And he wants to send an email to his wife to let her know that he made it there just fine. He had written her email address on a scrap of paper, but he couldn't find it. And so he tried as best as he could to remember her email address from memory. 
Well, he sent the email out to her, but he actually didn't remember the email address properly. And instead of his email going to his wife, it actually was sent to, the, uh, uh, to an elderly woman whose uh, pastor husband had just died the previous day. When she got the email, she screamed and fell over and everybody in her family wanted to know what happened and they came in and they looked on her video screen and here's what the email said. Because remember, she just lost her pastor husband. Dear darling, I have arrived at my destination. The trip here was fairly uneventful. I was amazed to find that they actually have computers here and you can email your loved ones. I look forward to seeing you with me tomorrow. P.S. It sure is hot down here. (laughs) Jesus and the fall feasts is what we're going to be covering tonight. And uh, as an introduction to this, uh, and and I I recognize most faces. Is there anybody here who's here tonight who was not here last night? Raise your hands. That's what I thought. Brother, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Anybody else? Okay. Got a couple of folks who are here for the first time. I'll just give you the 29-cent grand tour. The word rabbi up there has a little bit of a different connotation than the usual Jewish rabbi because most usual Jewish rabbis don't come to churches. Uh, But I am a rabbi who believes in Jesus, so I'm a messianic rabbi. And uh, I came to the Lord in 1988 after I married a Christian girl who knew more about my Jewish Bible than I did and who showed me the promised Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. Amen? Um, tonight, as, as long as uh, you have your notes, if you brought a Bible with you, would you open it up, please, and turn to Leviticus chapter 23. One of the things that we talked about last night, uh, and it's a point that I made last night that needs to be made again tonight, is I said last night that Jesus does not begin in Matthew, that he's from the first word of the first chapter of the first book, Genesis, all the way through to the last word of Revelation. And tonight is a great case in point. We are going to find Jesus in one of the most unlikely places in the book of Leviticus, specifically chapter 23. And uh, as you're turning there, you know, I'm I'm always intrigued about the, the myriad of places in the Bible where you could find Jesus where you don't expect. And Leviticus is one of the more uncommon ones because, let's face it, when we decide to do a Bible reading, and how many of us read the Bible before we go to bed at night? We have anybody in here? Okay, a couple of you. One of the, the, you can be sure that if you read, if you start reading the book of Leviticus before you go to bed at night, you will fall asleep very quickly. Especially when you begin in the first four or five chapters that talk about such thrilling and exciting things like meal offerings and grain offerings and fellowship offerings and burnt offerings and guilt offerings. You know, if that kind of stuff doesn't whip you into a frenzy like caffeine, I don't know what does. And as you go further into the book, after you've gotten through these sacrifices and the rituals of the priests, sometimes we may say, you know, how does an ephah of flour affect my life today? What does that have to do with anything? And sometimes we tend to just slough off the whole book. But in Leviticus chapter 23, this is a wonderful place to find Christ. And let me set the tone and the scene for you as you're looking in this chapter right now. Leviticus chapter 23 is one of the more unique and unusual chapters of the book of Leviticus because it's in this chapter that God basically says, this is my annual calendar of festivals for you. 
It's right here in this particular chapter, in Leviticus chapter 23. God gave the Israelites seven festivals to observe in Leviticus 23, or eight if you count the weekly Sabbath. And he tells them to do such interesting things such as, let's see, on one of the festivals, God says, uh, I want you to gather up barley. Uh, On another festival, he says, uh, gather up wheat. Still on another festival, he said, you know what, uh, I want you to gather up twigs and branches and, uh, and, and build a, uh, a, a portable shelter. And as you're reading this, you can't help but ask the obvious question. Because while God is telling these people to do all of these things, how many of you know that as he's telling them this, they happen to be wandering in the desert? And how many of you know there's no barley in the desert? And how many of you know there's no wheat in the desert? Nor are there twigs in the desert. There's a lot of sand in the desert, but there's nothing else. So the question is, why is God telling them to do something to carry out his commands and instructions that they're not able to do? And the answer is very simple. It's because we serve a God who is a God of advance notice. How many of you uh, are, are so blessed that we serve a God who gives us advance warning and gives us time to prepare for when we're going to be doing something? God doesn't want the people gathering these things up now when they're in the wilderness because he tells them, when you get into the land that I am giving you, that's when I want you to do all of these things. There are, as I said, seven biblical festivals. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the three remaining festivals in the fall. There are four festivals in the spring to early summer that the book of Leviticus talks about. The first one is called Passover, which many of you are familiar with. The second one at that time was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's when you would eat bread that doesn't rise because it didn't have yeast in it. By the time of the days of Luke, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were considered one festival. But in these early days of Leviticus, they were considered two. The third festival, if you will, was called the Feast of First Fruits. And I spoke about the barley a couple of minutes ago. On the Feast of First Fruits, let let me tell you what this was. This was unusual. Uh, After Passover, Uh, what you would be commanded to do is you would be commanded to go out into uh, uh, your backyards and get the best sheaf of barley you could find, bring that sheaf of barley to the priest, and the priest would lift it up as a sign of thanks for God providing the harvest and bring all the people around the priest so that that barley could be lifted up. It was as if they were bringing the people before God himself. And uh, by the way, that feast, as well as all of these feasts, point to Jesus because the New Testament tells us that how many of you know that Christ is our first fruits? And he's the fulfillment of the barley because what he said was, and I, if I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. After the feast of first fruits, of course, we have the, the festival of Pentecost. And that rounds out the first four feasts of the year. You have Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost. Tonight, as I said, we're going to be looking just at the three remaining festivals in the fall. And I will give you their names. And uh, they all have Hebrew names, so I'll give you the English names and the Hebrew names. The first festival in the fall is called the Feast of Trumpets. But it's also known... 
by a, a Hebrew name, and uh, I'll teach you some Hebrew tonight. I figure since you have the rabbi here tonight, you want to learn a, l- a little bit of Hebrew? That's the right answer. Uh, this festival is also known as Rosh Hashanah. So uh, it's two words, and I'll have you say it with me. Everybody say Rosh Hashanah. Great. And those words are not only indicative of the Feast of Trumpets, but they actually mean the head of or the beginning of the year. And I'll tell you more about that as we go on. The second of the fall festivals, which, by the way, is found in Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32, is called the Day of Atonement. And in Hebrew, this one tends to be a toughie for some, so I'm, 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 I'm really going to give this to you so that you get it right and you all sound Israeli. In Hebrew, uh, repeat after me, the words are Yom Kippur. Very, very good. Excellent. Excellent. Most people don't always get that one right. I remember about uh, five years ago, I was doing this teaching at a, a, a church in West Virginia. By the way, do we have anybody in here tonight who's from West Virginia? All right, good. I can tell this story. Um, we were at a church in West Virginia, and it was uh, one of these churches that was really, really in the backwoods country. Uh, but yeah, just a sweet, sweet pastor, and we were doing this conference, and on the second night of the conference, the pastor introduced me, and he said, he said, well, everybody, he said, we are just so glad that you're here with us again, and we have Rabbi Jack Zimmerman here at the conference, and he's teaching us about the fall feast, and tonight, he's going to teach us about the festival of Yom Kippur, and I went, oh my goodness. And, uh, and, and, you know, at the end, I said, Pastor, I had a great time. I said, I just need to tell you something. He said, what? I said, well, it's actually not Yom Kippur. It's pronounced Yom Kippur. He said, what does Yom Kippur mean? I said, well, you just introduced me to talk about an ocean of fish. So it's called Yom Kippur. And uh, the term Yom Kippur really means the Day of Atonement or the Day of Covering. Okay. And then the third and final fall festival, which is found in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 44, is called by a number of different names. Uh, The most common one that's used here in the church would probably be the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also a very popular time for uh, believers to go to Israel to celebrate the Feast of of Tabernacles in the Holy Land. It's also known in English as the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. And in Hebrew, it goes by the term Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, is one of the ways to spell it. So those are the three festivals that we're going to be looking at tonight. And what I'll be doing is I'll be taking you through each one, explaining the Old Testament significance. And here's what you need to know. They always did, they do today, and they always will point to Christ. They've been about him from the very beginning. So you ready to take this journey with me tonight? All right. Let's talk about this first of these festivals called, as we said, the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, and it's found in a number of places in Scripture. But in Leviticus 23, we find the description of the Feast of Trumpets in verses 23 through 25. And here's what the verses say. 
The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering or more than likely a fire offering to the Lord. So let me tell you a little bit about this. Let me break this down for you. First of all, we said that this uh, festival in Hebrew was called Rosh Hashanah. With the Hebrew word Rosh means the head of and Hashanah means the year. So Rosh Hashanah means the head of or the beginning of the year. How many of you know another way of saying the beginning of the year is Happy New Year, right? When does our year begin? On January 1. So we say Happy New Year. So is this or was this a new year in ancient biblical times? Yes, but it wasn't the only one. Because while we may have one New Year's Day event, you need to know that in ancient Israel they had four. There was a ceremonial start of a new year, a religious start of a new year, a new year for trees, and a new year for kings. Our new year starts on the first day of the first month. It's nice. It works out that way. It's nice and orderly. But take a look at this. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, So you had a new year that began on the first day of the seventh month, and this was the ceremonial new year. You also had a religious new year that began on the first day of the first month, and so on and so on and so forth. Let's see what God wanted the people to do on this particular day. He said, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest. Let me tell you what resting on the Sabbath means. It means you give yourself an opportunity to make sure that nothing and no one interferes with the date day that you are supposed to have with God. It's a day of spiritual intimacy with just you and God alone. And I call it a date day because I think it's an appropriate term. And I may be putting some people on the spot here, but uh, guys, how many of you who are married have a date night with your spouse from time to time? Okay, I see a couple of hands. I didn't see all of them. I may end up starting wars after this night is over, but unintentionally. Well, we have a date night with our spouse, and uh, I, I remember in Sandy, my wife Sandy and I try to have regular date nights. About three years ago, we were out on a date night, and uh, we were sitting in a bookstore and reading some books and having coffee together and discussing. And while we were doing that, I made a terrible mistake. I committed the cardinal sin. While she and I were out on a date, my cell phone rang, and I answered it. And as I'm talking on the cell phone to somebody in the congregation who had a theological question, my wife is looking back at me with a look of death on her face. And me being the brilliant husband, and of course definitely having a clue of what the problem was, after I got off the phone and put it down, I looked back at her and said, What? And she said, Was that an emergency? I said, Well, no. She said, Then don't pick it up next time. This is our date night together and nobody should interrupt us. And you know what? She was right. Now, if we should regard a date night with our spouse as that important that nobody and and nothing should interrupt it, how much more so should we not regard a date day with God? 
And so God said on this day, have a Sabbath rest. This is just you and me alone together. A sacred assembly, that means you get together as a group to worship God, commemorated with trumpet blasts. So you would blow the trumpet on this particular day. There were two types of trumpets blown in ancient Israel. There were silver trumpets blown. And if you heard the silver trumpets blowing, it was not going to be a good day. Because when the silver trumpets were blown, that means the tribes were getting ready to go to battle, to go to war. On the other hand, the other type of trumpets you had were trumpets usually made out of ram's horns. There's a Hebrew term for it. That type of trumpet is called a shofar, S-H-O-F-A-R. And that type of trumpet was actually blown on the first day of every single month on the calendar. But when it was blown on the first day of the seventh month, it had a little bit extra significance than in any other time that it was blown. Because since this was a new year, when you heard the trumpet being blown on the first day of this month on the Feast of Trumpets, you were to regard the sound coming out of it as a call from God to say to you, there's a new year beginning. And in this new year, I want you to make a commitment to turn away from your sin and turn to me. Because one day I will be coming back. And when I come back to judge, I want to come back to a holy and righteous people. So how many of you know when the seventh month came and the trumpet was blown on the first day, the people gave extra special attention to it? And that's an overview for you of the Feast of Trumpets. Let me give you some reasons why else the trumpet was blown in the days of old and the significance that it has. And here's where we're going to connect Old Testament to New. Let's look at our next slide. After the people got into the land, when they blew the trumpet on the first day of the seventh month, this ram's horn, they were reminded of a story from their past. A very, very famous story, and a story that all of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. How many of you know that there are places in Scripture that all somebody has to do is mention the book and the chapter, and you know the story? Acts chapter 2 is a perfect example. Genesis 22 is another one of those places. You all know, hopefully, what happens in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is ready to take his one and only son, Isaac, up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And you read the conversation as they go up, and it's almost heartbreaking. And Isaac says, he says, Dad, you know, we've got the wood for the sacrifice. We've got the altar. We've got everything we need. But where are we going to get the sacrifice itself? And Abraham says, he says, don't worry, uh, uh, Isaac. My son, God himself will provide the sacrifice. So they get up on Mount Moriah, and and obviously Abraham lays Isaac down on the altar. And as Abraham is about to bring the knife down on Isaac, everybody remember what happened? An angel of the Lord comes and says, Abraham, don't do it. Now that I know, now that the Lord knows that you are a man of faith, you don't have to sacrifice your son Isaac. Go take a look over there in those bushes. And we pick up the action in Genesis 22, 13. So Abraham did look up, and there in the thicket in those bushes, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, and he sacrificed the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. So my friends, 
In the ancient times, when people blew the shofar or the ram's horn on that first day of the seventh month, it was a reminder to them of the ram that had been provided as a substitutionary sacrifice for their descendant Isaac. In fact, in this imagery, I guess you could say that we have this innocent, spotless ram that took the blows, that died so that Isaac could live. How many of you know this always pointed to Jesus? And it still does. You know, I kind of like the, the idea of a, of a substitutionary sacrifice that would have to die, even though the sacrifice was totally innocent, so that Isaac could live, so that others could live. I wonder if there's a connection. Here's your parallel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How many of you know that one of the reasons that shofar was blown in the days of old was so God could convey and get across the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice who would die in our place so that we might have eternal life? Do you see that parallel, everybody? This is all about Jesus. Let's go on to the next reason why the ram's horn of the shofar was blown in the days of old. I love this story from 1 Kings chapter 1, but don't look at the verse yet. Let me set this up for you, which means that after I said that, everybody's looking at the verse, but try not to. Here's the story from 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, we get into the story, and King David is on his deathbed, and he doesn't have long to go at all, and we know that because he's laying in the bed. They keep putting covers on top of him because he's freezing cold, but nothing helps. doesn't take the cold away. So how many of you know he doesn't have a lot of time left? So obviously he's going to be passing away soon, and both of his sons know this. Two of his sons, obviously, Solomon is one. The other son is Adonijah. They both know that their father is going to be passing away. But these sons acknowledge this in two very different ways. David's son Solomon is preparing for a time of mourning at the passing of his father. On the other hand, guess what David's son Adonijah is doing? Adonijah is throwing a party, everybody. And the reason that Adonijah is throwing a party is because he's saying to himself, he says, you know, uh, dad is going to die, which means that there's going to be a vacancy for a king. And I think I make a great king. So I think what I'll do is I'll just hold a party and invite everybody to come on over to my house. And I'll say, this is a party because I am now proclaiming myself king. So it'll be me, Adonijah, the new king party. And it's exactly what the son does. And he invites people to come on over to his house and they're having the party. And he says, uh, okay, we're having a party. And by the way, I'm the new king. And Adonijah even had the audacity to invite some members from his father's cabinet over. And so while this party is being thrown, some of King David's men are at the party and they said, okay, we have a problem here. Uh, this is not right. We don't think that Adonijah is supposed to be king. And so they go and they speak to Bathsheba. And they say, listen, we don't want to go to your husband to tell him this. You better tell him. Uh, tell him his son Adonijah is throwing a party and declaring himself king. And last I checked, I believe it's supposed to be Solomon. So you might want to tell David. Can you imagine what King David is going through? The man couldn't even die in peace. He doesn't have a lot of time left. And now they're hitting him with a stressful situation. But 
on his deathbed, David says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a king on the throne the right way. And he tells some of his men to go to a town called Gihon. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 33 through 34, tells us what they were to do from there. It says, David said, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. And there have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet. It's a ram's horn, guys. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. So how many of you know that Adonijah declared himself king, but just because you declare yourself king doesn't mean you're going to be king. There was a special coronation ceremony that had to be done to bring a new king on the throne. And part of that coronation ceremony meant that you blew the trumpet. You blew the ram's horn. That's the way it was. And how many of you know that's also the way it is again? Because, let's connect and go now to the New Testament. How does this point to Christ really easily? In Revelation 19.16, you know, when you read the book of Revelation, it talks about the trumpets that are being blown. And in many cases, those are ram's horns. And just as the ram's horn was blown in the days of old to place a new king on the throne, how many of you know that those trumpets that will be blown in Revelation will be blown to put yet another king on the throne? And let's look and see who he is. In Revelation 19, 16, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when the trumpet is blown, a new king comes on the throne. That's the way it was, and that's the way it will be again. And here's the beautiful part about it, my friends. When Jesus inherits the throne as king, you know how long his reign lasts? Eternally. We don't need another king after him at all. Amen? Let's take a look at another parallel here from Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. You blew the trumpet in the days of old because the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 27, 13, he said, and in that day a great trumpet will sound. Those who are perishing in Assyria and those who are exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So one of the reasons that the trumpet was blown a long, long time ago in ancient Israel is that it was a reminder to the people that one day God himself, at the blowing of a trumpet, would come and he would gather his people together from near and far to be with him. That's the way that it was. And that was the significance of hearing the trumpet back then. And how many of you know that did, it does, and it always will point to Jesus. Here's the fulfillment. It's found in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command or the shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. By the way, everybody, you following me? You connecting the dots with me? Everybody getting the parallels? And I'm asking because last night we were real energetic, but that was because we had the day off and today we've gone to work and we trudged through the snow and then we came home and came here. So I know you need to be revived maybe a little bit more than you did last night. Plus we made the coffee late so you didn't have as much. So I just want to make sure that you're getting all this stuff. We all good so far? 
All right, good. Praise the Lord. Let's go on. What I want to do now is I want to go on to the second of the four of the fall festivals. Now that we've given you an overview of the, the Feast of Trumpets. And by the way, uh, just before we go on, the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, um, perhaps we as a church have never given that a second thought before. And there's reason for that. It is one of the most holiest days of the year for Jewish people. And so the media tends to uh, label it as a Jewish holiday. And by the way, these holidays or festivals are not simply Jewish holidays. They're Jesus holidays. They've been all about him from the very, very beginning. Let's talk about this second one now from Leviticus 23. <clears throat> the Day of Atonement or <laughs> Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. It says, on the 10th day of this seventh month. Okay, let's see if you were listening. The Feast of Trumpets that we just finished up was on the first day of what month? Seventh month. This one is on the 10th day of the seventh month. So this festival comes only nine days after the one that we just talked about. So on the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It is a holy convocation for you. A holy convocation is another way of saying a sacred assembly. It means coming together as people, not for a PTA meeting, not for a ball game, but specifically to worship God. And you shall deny yourselves, which the way that it's observed by Jewish people today is you don't have anything to eat or drink for the entire 24 hours of the festival. Deny yourselves and present a fire offering to the Lord. That means that in the days of old in the tabernacles, the priests would have this, this pan, might be made of iron or bronze. They would put uh, some hot coals in it, some incense on top, and then burn the incense so that it would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And they do this on Yom Kippur. Don't do any work on this day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf. Before the Lord your God. Here, my friends, is the story of the Day of Atonement. When God, when the people got into the Holy Land, here's what the Lord told them to do in accordance with these verses. If you were one of these Jewish people who came into this land all those years ago, when this day came, this was one of the most important days of the year for you because this was the day that your sins were going to be wiped the clean slate from the past year and you could start the new year off fresh how many of you know that that's a day that you don't want to miss and so the people didn't want to miss this day and uh, the way that this day started was that everybody would wake up very early more than likely the father of the home would wake up the earliest because what the father of the home would have to do is that while everybody was getting ready to start the day, he would go into his fields and flocks and take hold of a male lamb or ram without any sin or mark or spot or blemish or sickness on it. The head of the family would then take that animal to the priest at the temple or the tabernacle. The priest would then slay that animal right then and there, take the blood from the animal and go into the inner tent of the inner tent of the inner tent of the inner tent the most holy place where the ark of the covenant was and the priest would then take the blood from that animal sprinkle it on, sprinkle it on the mercy seat and once that was done 
Your sins were covered for the past year. You are ready to start clean all over again. And that's how the Jewish people had their sins atoned for. And how many of you know that worked out pretty well? Until the year 70. Because in the year 70, something happened that just totally messed up that whole formula. In the year 70, the Roman army came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And how many of you know that caused a big problem for those people who wanted to observe the Day of Atonement? Because they said, well, wait a minute. Uh, If we don't have a temple, that means we don't have priests. And that means we, we don't have a place to bring our animals to sacrifice. And if we can't sacrifice animals, how are we going to receive forgiveness of God for our sins? And so the Jewish people basically turned to their rabbis and the rabbis said, well, what should we do? The rabbi said, well, why don't you just do the rest of the stuff? Uh, For example, let's see, it's a holy convocation. Well, you could all still come together to worship God. You could do that. Deny yourselves. Don't have anything to eat or drink. You could still do that. Present a fire offering. No, that took place in the temple. You can't do that. Do no work on this day. Yeah, we can still take off from work and do the other stuff. And so ever since the year 70, Jewish people have been doing all of the other stuff. They've been getting together in their synagogues. They haven't been having anything to eat or drink. They haven't worked on that day. And they come into their synagogues and worship and pray. And they say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I repent. I ask for your forgiveness. And at the end of 24 hours, they figure, hey, we're good to go. Everything's great. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that you can't change God's word, my friends. And the other problem with that is that, uh, well, it's not really a problem, but it has to do with this next verse, Leviticus seventeen eleven. It says, for the life of a creature or the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. When God makes the rules, you can't change it. Yes, the temple was destroyed in the year 70 and the people couldn't offer sacrifices anymore. But how many of you know that 40 years before that temple was destroyed, God had already taken care of the sacrificial problem by sending his own self manifested in the form of his son on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice. And if the folks had acknowledged that, they wouldn't have to worry about the animals anymore. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, uh, the Day of Atonement. Just a little bit of a side story here. And I told uh, all of you last night, but we've got some folks who are here from the first time. I am the um, uh, senior messianic rabbi of a messianic congregation. It's another way of saying a Jewish church in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, we have, just like regular traditional synagogues do, we have services at our congregation on the Day of Atonement. It begins in the evening. This is what traditional uh, congregations do. And uh, uh, typically what happens is um, uh, on the Day of Atonement, Jewish people go to their synagogues and the service is very, very, very somber because people walk in with their faces downcast. They feel bad that they've committed sin. And of course, since they're denying themselves, you know, another reason they look ash and gray is because they haven't had anything to eat or drink for five minutes or whatever the case happens to be. 
Now, we as a Messianic congregation also have services on the Day of Atonement. But our services are a little bit different because we're not wishing and hoping that God will provide the atonement. We understand that God has already provided it, so we celebrate. Now, about six, seven years ago, when people were still putting ads in the yellow pages, our congregation asked to put an ad in the yellow pages. And uh, I remember we got a call from the yellow pages representative, and he said, is this Rabbi Zimmerman? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, Rabbi Zimmerman, he said, listen, this is, this is Don from the Yellow Pages, and I'm calling because I, I believe we, we've made a mistake in placing your ad. I said, oh? He said, yeah, we'll give you a free one, but let me tell you what happened. He said that uh, we know that, that you're a messianic congregation and you folks worship Jesus, so we, we were planning to put your congregation in the listing of churches that are like-minded and believe in Jesus, but, well, we made a mistake, and we ended up putting your congregation in the listing of traditional Jewish congregations. And he said, now, Rabbi, I hope this is not going to be a problem for you, but what that means is that you're going to have Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, and they're going to be calling your congregation and asking you for information, and they may even want to come. And I said, that's no problem at all. In fact, would you do me a favor and please make that mistake next year and the year after that and the year after that? Because we're a congregation that desires for Jewish people who don't yet know the Lord to come in. So his mistake was, was, was absolutely wonderful. Well, I remember about six, seven years ago when that mistake was made, we got a call. And uh, I was in the office one day and I, I pick up the phone and I say, Hi, this is Rabbi Jack Zimmerman. And uh, he says... Uh, he says, yes, I would like to speak to the rabbi. And I said, you've got him. He said, rabbi, I would like to introduce myself. I said, yes. He said, my name is Leo Schwartz. I said, uh, uh, Leo, um, uh, do you live in Phoenix? He said, yeah. I said, so you're originally from New York. What part? He said, how did you know? I said, trust me, I figured it out. I said, so Leo, why are you calling? He said, well... Are you having Yom Kippur services? I said, yes. He said, so how much are the tickets? Let me explain why he asked. This is a major time for congregations to raise funds because they understand that just as there are Christians who only go to church, some Christians only go to church two times a year on Christmas and Easter. Listen, our people got the same problem. Some of our people only go to synagogue on the Feast of Trumpets and on the Day of Atonement. And uh, so because of that, it is traditional for many synagogues to charge those people since they're only coming twice a year. So, for example, this seat, which last week in the synagogue might have been free for you to come and sit in. Listen, if it's Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, that seat that might have been free last week, you might pay 500 bucks for it this week. And so what they do is the synagogue sell tickets with seat numbers on them. It's like, you know, going to see a Tigers game. And uh, so he says to me, he says, Rabbi, so how much are the tickets? I said, they're free. He said, what? Did you say free? I said, absolutely. He said, how can this be? I've never heard of this before. He said, why? I said, because Leo, we don't believe that you should have to pay to pray. He said, I like this. 
He said, when are the services? And I gave him the date and time. He said, okay, great, I'm coming, I'll see you, click. And you know, doggone it, he hung up the phone so fast, I didn't get the chance to tell him that we are a Jewish congregation that believes in Jesus. Oh, well. And so the night of Yom Kippur comes and, and our service begins and there is dancing going on and praise and worship and we're happy because on this day of atonement we're acknowledging the once and for all sacrificial atonement of Jesus. And Leo walks in and he's looking around like this because he can't believe that people are actually having a good time. And at the end of the service he comes over to me and he says, listen, Rabbi, this is wonderful, I enjoyed it. I don't understand it, but I enjoyed it. What are you doing? And I said, we are acknowledging our once and for all atonement. We're not wishing and hoping and praying. We're acknowledging the fact that when we asked Yeshua, Jesus, into our lives, who God the Father provided as a once and for all sacrifice, our sins were cleansed and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And we're celebrating him. That had such an impact on that man. Three weeks later, he gave his life to Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. You can clap for that. Listen, if you don't clap clap for somebody getting saved, what are you going to clap for? This is all about Christ. And it's a reminder that when Jesus comes back, we're told in, we're told, why is this not working? It's, did the battery go down? It might have. Something popped up on your screen. I didn't do it. Okay. Ah, there we go. How is Jesus our once and for all sacrifice? Hebrews 9.12 tells us, He did not enter the tabernacle or the temple by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Do you realize how huge this was? That in the Old Testament times, every single family had to bring each one of them an animal. One animal per family, per each family, every single year. And yet all it took was the one sacrifice of Jesus, one time to atone for the sins for the whole world, past, present, and future. That's amazing! Let's go on. Because, oh, come on. You may have to do it manually there, brother. Go ahead and feel free to advance that slide for me. I don't know. Let's see. There's a little asterisk up on the top that basically wants to... I love technology. It's a Jewish thing. Okay, let's see what we got. (laughs) When it works. If we're banging it, that's good, I think. Okay. We'll see if we can advance that for you. We're going to pause and take a commercial break, ladies and gentlemen. Are you tired feeling run down? No, no, no. So give us just a minute. And uh, by the way, actually, while, uh, while we're waiting, what I want you to do now is uh, we'll take a look at our third and final fall festival. Sorry? Okay, give it a shot. There we go. Zechariah 12.10 tells us 
about Jesus as our once and for all sacrifice when he returns. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. How many of you know that when Jesus returns, the light bulb is going to go on. And people are going to recognize the fact that he indeed is the fulfillment of the sacrifices of old. Everybody got the parallels? All right. Last and final festival for the fall. Here it is. Found in Leviticus chapter 23. Now these uh, verses actually run all the way from verse 33 to 44, but I've isolated just some of them for you. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And let's read what the verses say. The 15th day of this seventh month. Okay, let's take a pause there. Pop quiz. Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah was what day of the seventh month? The first. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, was what day of the seventh month? The tenth. Now on this third festival, this is the fifteenth day of the seventh month. So, we have three festivals so far in this month, and it's the fifteenth day. This month is only half, uh, halfway over, and we've had three parties so far. That's pretty good, isn't it? Fifteenth day of the seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, or also known as the Feast of Booths to the Lord. The first day is a holy convocation. You all know what that means now. Don't do any work on that day. For seven days, bring a fire offering to the Lord. There's your incense again. All native Israelites shall live in booths for seven days so that your generations may know that when I made the Israelites, that I made the Israelites dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Well, Lord, thanks for telling us because we didn't know that until now. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness in the desert, God provided them booths or shelters to dwell in. Can you imagine their reaction when they saw this? I mean, again, you're in the desert and all of a sudden you see this booth or tent or shelter that God provides out of nowhere. You're probably thinking, am I really seeing this? Maybe it's a mirage. But when they got to it and they touched it and they felt it, they said, wow, we know that the Lord has provided this. And it was a wonderful experience for them because it was as if God himself had provided and was dwelling with them and they were dwelling with God. Keep that thought in mind. It's going to come in handy in a little bit. God was dwelling with them spiritually and they were dwelling with God. So on this festival, what the Lord said all those years later is he said, I want you to build booths. And I want you to live in those booths for seven days. And that way you'll never forget what I did for your ancestors. And as long as you keep building these booths this time each year, you'll always remember that I provided booths for your ancestors who were wandering in the wilderness. This particular festival was also special in another way. One of the reasons it was special, well, before we get to that, one of the reasons it was special is because if you lived in Israel during this time, or even during Jesus' day, there were three times during the year when you and your family, wherever you lived in Israel, had to go up and make a pilgrimage to the holy temple in Jerusalem to go to the temple and offer sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. There were three festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and this one, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so let's, let's put ourselves in the picture. Let's go back 3,500 years or so. And we've all come into the land of Israel. And it's now the 15th day of the seventh month. And we've built our booths. And here's what else we're going to do. 
we are going to gather up twigs and branches and fruits and we in our entire community are going to go up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now, if let's say you lived in a place like Bethlehem or Bethany, well, it was a pretty quick visit to the temple. It might only take you about a half an hour, 45 minutes to walk there from the farthest point. But if you lived, let's say, in Jaffa, it might take you a day or two. That was quite a, quite a pilgrimage. We're told that when the people went up to the temple in Jerusalem, they sang songs. Now, wouldn't it be great to be able to know what songs they sang all those years ago as they're going up to the temple in Jerusalem? Guess what? We know what the songs were. And guess what else? If you have a Bible, you have the songs in them. Because what the people would do is they would begin their pilgrimage by singing and starting off singing Psalms 118. They'd sing all the way through to Psalms 136. And then after that, they'd go back to Psalms 118 and start singing through all over and over again. And the question is, why did they start with Psalm 118 and end with Psalm 136? It's because, my friends, they're bookends. They say the same thing. Take a look at those two psalms. The wording's the same. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. So which psalm is that? 118 or 136? Answer, yeah. And so they had this parade going up to Jerusalem singing those songs. At the temple itself in Jerusalem, there was another parade going on. The high priest in the temple himself would organize a little bit of a parade. What he would do is he would have priests and musicians behind him. He would take hold of a golden pitcher and he would say, okay, everybody play music and follow me. And the priest would lead this little parade and he would take them from the temple and they would exit the temple through one of the gates that was called the water gate. This is long before Nixon. Don't even go there. So the priest leads this little parade out of the temple and it's called the water gate because he's taking them over to the pool of Siloam. Once he gets to the pool of Siloam, he leans down on his knee and he fills the golden pitcher with water in it. By the way, that water was known as living water because it was from a pool that was moving. So he's got this living water, if you will, in this golden pitcher and he says, okay, I've got what I want. Let's all go back into the temple. What was that parade all about? Why did he gather up the water? Well, I'll tell you about that in a few minutes. But one of the things that I want you to know now is, by the way, all these festivals that we're looking at tonight, not only have they always been about Jesus, but by the way, Jesus celebrated them all. And we have a record of Jesus celebrating this particular festival, in fact, in, here it is, John chapter 7. Now, let me set these verses up for you. And we'll look at the first five verses in John chapter 7. Because the verses begin by saying, after this. Mm. So how many of you know, if we want to understand what these verses are all about, we have to understand what this was. So let me tell you what this was. What this was is that uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching to the masses. And he's having a great, great day. And everybody is hanging on his every word. Until at one point, Jesus says, by the way, now that I've got you in rapt attention, here's what I want you to do next. Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And at that point, many who were listening said, you were doing so well until you said that. Bye. And they walked away and they left. And so after that, or after this, Jesus went around in the Galilee. It's the northern part of Israel. 
he didn't want to go about in Judea where Jerusalem was because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. It's probably a good reason to avoid it. But when the Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you need to leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. Come on, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing all this great stuff, show yourself to the world. My friends, there you have the establishment of the first public relations agency in the Bible. And that's why it says in verse 5, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. They were saying all these things because they wanted Jesus to be this celebrity. And of course, if you read on in the story, you know what happens. Jesus says to them, he says, no, I tell you what, um, you guys go to the feast. My time has not yet come. It's not yet time for me. You guys go to the feast. I'm not going. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the times where Jewish men were supposed to go up. What did he mean when he said he said, it's not yet my time? What he was saying was, it's not yet my time to be glorified, to be crucified. That would be six months later at Passover. But then he told his brothers, you guys go to the feast. I'm not going. But then we know that Jesus went up to the feast. So was he contradicting himself? No, Jesus wasn't going with them. But once they left, what happened? Jesus went up to the feast. He went up to the temple. And as he's at the temple, he's teaching and preaching. And something happens on the last day of the festival. Because on the last day of the festival, remember that pitcher of living water that I told you about that the priest gathered up? Well, on the last day of the festival, what the priest would do is after a whole seven days of sacrifices on the altar, the priest would take that golden pitcher filled with water and spill it on top of the altar to wash away all the blood from the sacrifice. And we're told, if you will, that at the bottom of the altar, there were like these two pipelines that went back to the pool of Siloam, one theoretically for the blood, another theoretically for the water in this imagery of a sacrifice. Kind of reminds me of another verse like, John 19.34, where it said that uh, as Jesus was on the cross in order to ensure that he was dead, a Roman soldier came over and pierced his side and out one way came blood and another way came water. And Jesus himself is watching all this. And as the golden pitcher of living water is poured on the altar, look what Jesus says on this last day of the feast in John 7.37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And what he's saying is that, don't you get it? I'm the once and for all sacrifice. It's not about pouring water over a sacrificial animal and watching them come in two trails down back to the pool of Siloam. Streams of living water will flow through you if you put your trust in me. It's all about him. By the way, there's a very, very popular story in Scripture that takes place during this festival. Do you all know the story from uh, John 7.53 to 8.12 on the woman who was caught in adultery? Remember the story? You've read it. That's the one where um, the Pharisees and the priest chief, uh, chiefs, chief priests bring a woman who was uh, caught in adultery and they bring her into the temple. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, what should be done with this woman? And uh, the reason that they ask him that is because they're trying to trap him. 
Because if Jesus says, well, you know, according to Jewish law, you have to stone her to death. Well, the Jewish uh, uh, people, the Jewish Sanhedrin officers who are around won't have a problem with that. But the Roman officers would, and they would have arrested him. On the other hand, if Jesus said, well, you've got to spare her life, well, the Roman officers wouldn't have a problem with that, but then the Sanhedrin would have arrested him. And so either way, they figure he's trapped. By the way, if indeed the woman is caught in adultery, I believe if she sinned, adultery takes two. Where's the guy? Did you ever think about that? So they bring the woman caught in adultery, and they think they've got Jesus trapped. And you know how the story goes. It says, it says then that Jesus stooped down to write. And after he wrote something in the sand, he got up and he said, Okay, now go ahead. Say that any of you are without sin. Go ahead and cast the first stone. And people have been trying to figure out for the ages what it was that Jesus could have possibly written. You won't know from the English, but you will know from the Greek. Would you like me to tell you what he wrote? All right, get this down. This is important. The Greek word for to write something is the word graphene. It's where we get the word graphite from, that chemical, obviously, that, that uh, material that's inside of our pencils. Graphene is spelled G-R-A-P-H, like the word graph, E-I-N. It means to write. But when it says that Jesus stooped down to write in the original Greek, the word graphene is not the Greek word that's used. It's another word. It's actually the word called katagraphene. Take that same word graphene, now put the four letters K-A-T-A in front of it. And that also means to write. But it has a little bit of a different meaning to it. While the word graphene simply means to write something, the word katagraphene, which is the Greek word used here to say that Jesus stooped down to write, means to write an accounting of one's actions, attitudes, and behaviors to basically write a record of their sins. Now you know. And so when Jesus got up and he basically said, okay, now let's see any of you without sin cast the first stone, they couldn't say that they were without sin because Jesus had just written them all down. And that, of course, is when they backed away. And as they backed away, what did Jesus say to the woman? He said, woman, go and sin no more. And then from there, in the very next verse, he says, I am the light of the world. How many of you know that's a drastic change of subject? It, it seems kind of weird. Go and sin no more. I'm the light of the world. It, what's the connection? Here's the connection. When the people were going up to Jerusalem and making that pilgrimage, sometimes it took them a couple of days. How many of you know it was a little tougher at night? But at night, even if you were miles away, you could still see the temple in Jerusalem. The reason was that during this time of year, there were four huge torches that were lit at night that could be seen from all around. And it was only during this festival that they were. And it's because of this that on this particular festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, and only during this festival, that the temple complex went by a certain name. It was called the light of the world because it was the place that would light your path to bring you closer to God. And when Jesus was saying during that same festival, I am the light of the world, what he is saying is, I'm the path. I'm the one that you need to draw close to for I will bring you to God the Father. Now what's the fulfillment of this festival? 
Well, remember a little while ago I said that uh, when those Israelites were dwelling in the wilderness in those shelters, it was as if God was dwelling with them and they were dwelling with him spiritually. The fulfillment is when we get to do so physically. Here's how it ends. Revelation 21.3. This is the fulfillment, by the way, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now literally and physically among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. These festivals, my friends, are all about Jesus. They always were, they are, and they always will be. And the question is, okay, so what's our take home tonight from this, aside from getting a heck of a lot of head knowledge? And how many of you know we got a lot of stuff thrown at us in the past hour? Here it is. We have been so incredibly blessed tonight because now, from now on, each and every year, when these festivals come up that heretofore have been presented to us as Jewish feasts, they will now, from now on, for the rest of our lives, be a reminder to us that they're talking about Jesus. I mean, last year, did any of us on the Feast of Trumpets even know it was the Feast of Trumpets and even give a second thought to Jesus coming back blowing the trumpet? Probably not. But now we'll think of him in that regard from now on. Did any of us last year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur think that it was pointed to Christ as our once and for all sacrifice? Probably not. But now we will. Did any of us last year on this Feast of Tabernacles even think of it at all? And if we did, did we even think it had anything to do with Christ? Or that it was probably just a Jewish festival? But now, from now on, it's going to remind us of Jesus. So what I'm saying to you is that one of the great blessings that we've received tonight is out of a 365-day year, tonight we leave here adding three more days to our Uh, a spiritual calendar where we now have three new reminders of about Christ. I think that's a real blessing, don't you? Here's what I'll do. I'll close you in prayer. Then, like uh, we did last night, uh, Pastor, we'll have some a uh, little bit of time for question and answer. I'll tell you about the materials on our table that you can purchase. If you didn't get one of our cards from Jewish Voice Ministries last night, we'll give you one to fill out. I'll tell you about the ministry, and uh, uh, then uh, we'll get you home before it looks like Greenland out there. So uh, let me close you in prayer, our precious Heavenly Father. Lord, I know a lot of us are kind of tired tonight. Um, been uh, obviously the work week has started and driving uh, from the house to work and then back home and then here father in the snow and the slush uh, but Lord I want to thank you for everybody who's come and the attention that they've given father and, and their investment has been worth it because now they're going to be leaving with three additional reminders of days where they can focus uh, about Jesus that maybe where we would never have even thought of him before We thank you for that in Christ Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, amen. Question and answer time. This is your time now. Thank you, by the way, for listening to me this, uh, this past hour. I just want to know before the Q&A, did you guys get a lot out of this? Did you maybe learn a little bit tonight? Okay, good. All right, I just wanted to make sure. So uh, any Q&A tonight, any questions you have? Gary, you're number one. Okay, how many days in the Jewish year? 365. 365? Yes. Okay. All right. Yep. I thought, I thought it was different. I thought it was like 360. I thought it was... 
You, you know, let, well, let me put it to you this way. It probably, uh, actually, Gary, is closer to 360, considering the fact that the Jewish calendar goes more along the lunar cycle, the phases of the moon, as opposed to the Earth's rotation around the sun. So I think it adds up to like 360 and a half days. I can't remember the exact number, but, but pretty much it's almost... No, I, I guess I was just wondering... Uh, now, I will tell you this. Hold on, I don't want to forget. Once every four years... The uh, a, um, because it is 360, uh, you lose a month once every four years. And so once every four years on the Jewish calendar, they actually add an extra month to make up for the loss over the four. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, no, I was just wondering, um, don't the traditional Jewish, um, don't, don't they... Doesn't the new year change? Doesn't it has something to do with the barley, doesn't it? Uh, um, well, yes and no. Let me explain. Um, for example, each and every year Christmas for us is on December the 25th. But that's because our calendar is based on the Earth's rotation around the sun. Because the Jewish calendar is based on a couple of things the movements of the moon, the movement of the earth, and the movement of the sun, the, the date of holidays and festivals changes. Christmas will always be on December 25th. Our July 4th will always be on July 4th. But for example, if we take uh, the Feast of Trumpets, one year the Feast of Trumpets might be on our calendar September 7th. The next year it might be on September 29th. The following year it could be on September 1st. It changes because their calendar moves and, and, and works in the lunar phases as opposed to ours. I think that's what you were asking. So thank you for that. That's Anybody why, else? That's why the Jewish people are such good negotiators because we're always negotiating with things. <laughs> we say, we'll give it to you on this day. And they'll say, you were supposed to. And we say, no, that day didn't come yet. It's a different calendar. Any other questions tonight? Yes. What's the, what, specifically, what's the question regarding the Sabbath? Let me get it on, let me get it on Let's get that microphone over to you. We're taping all this. So. You know, God is so precise in the, the, the festivals here, and, and he's pretty precise about the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So are we correct? Are we celebrating on the right day or not? Um, when you say celebrating on the right day, which day are you referring to? Christians use Sunday. Mm -hmm. and is that the right? Should it be Saturday? Oh, love it. Great question. Yes. I was hoping for a little bit of controversy tonight. All right, let's rock and roll. You ready for this? Okay. Um, first of all, there's been a lot of division over the idea of Saturday and Sunday. And I've heard all the arguments. It's like, well, you know, God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then Constantine changed everything and we need to get back to the Sabbath. And is the church worshiping on the right day? Let me give an answer to that for starters. First of all, any and every day we worship God is the right day. Whether it's, whether it's a Saturday, whether it's a Sunday, whether it's Tuesday at 2.38 in the morning. Every day is a wonderful day to worship God. What your question really is, is that, well, shouldn't the church be giving up Sunday and moving to the Sabbath because God said that remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? We've got to keep a couple of things in mind. 
First of all, the Saturday Sabbath and the Sunday are not at odds with each other. We tend to pit things against each other when they're different, but we shouldn't have to. Let's remember something. When the church comes together on Sunday in worship, it is to honor Christ's resurrection. That's a beautiful thing because we've got to remember something. We wouldn't have, the only reason we have Christ is because of his, hang on, let me go back. Um, There's a certain formula that I'm looking to relate to you. Okay. The church beautifully honors the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath from where we get our Sabbath from. So we wouldn't have Sabbath if it were not for Jesus, but we wouldn't have Jesus today to worship were it not for his resurrection, which the church so beautifully honors on Sunday. We wouldn't have our Saturday Sabbath without the the affirmation of the resurrection in the first place. Both of these days are wonderful and special. They're different days, but they're complementary to one another. We've also got to remember something else, that I firmly believe that the church is perfectly right to honor God and to worship Jesus' uh, resurrection on Sunday. At the same time, I think it would be great to also have, to also have that Sabbath day where we could say, you know, I want to spend this full day, an entire day with God. Because let's face it, after many of us finish our worship on Sunday, that's it. We go about our business. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have our Sunday of worship and to even take advantage of the possibility on saying, you know, the day before, I'm going to make this my date day with the Lord. I don't think they should be pitted against each other. I think we can have the blessings of both. Thanks for the question. Does that mean I don't have to mow the grass on Sunday afternoon? (laughs) In the Shemitah year, no, that's another story. Anybody else? Wow, you are exhausted tonight. Okay, no problem. Here's what we're going to do. First of all, thank you for coming. We're going to get ready to send you home. Uh, A couple of things that I want to tell you about. For those who may not have been here last night, or even if you were, if you didn't yet get the opportunity to fill out one of our cards from Jewish Voice Ministries, would you do that? I am the staff evangelist for this wonderful ministry headed up by Rabbi Jonathan Burness, a ministry that understands the importance of, of sharing the good news with Jews and the nations all over the world. And uh, we've been doing this for almost 50 years. So when you get a chance before you go, fill out one of these cards. I'll have them on uh, my materials table so that we can get some free materials to you in the mail. Some magazines that come out every couple of months tell you what's going on in Israel and what you can pray for. A couple of materials that I want to tell you about, just three of them. And then I'm going to send you home tonight with that blessing like I did last night. And like I also did on the radio this morning on Promise FM. We sang it in the studio. A couple of books out there. This is uh, from our executive director, Rabbi Jonathan Burness, called A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. I love this book for two reasons. Number one, it puts Christ back in his original Jewish culture and context. As so many of us have been presented with, uh, I I think it was Solomon's portrait of Christ, where we've got this kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Norwegian Jesus who has a British accent in every full-length feature film and nothing Jewish about him. And so this brings back Jesus in his original culture and context, gives you an idea of how he lived as a Jew. 
And also, there are some great tips in here on how to witness the Jewish people because the writer Jonathan Burness also gives his testimony. So you might want to pick that up. This is a CD set called The Feasts of Israel. Tonight, I went over with you the Old Testament and the New Testament aspects of Christ in the fall festivals. This CD set goes through all of the biblical feasts. It's done by Rabbi Jonathan Burness. Uh, he does a great job. He's as thorough as I am. He's just not as funny as I am. So I got to warn you if you get that. He probably won't have as many jokes. And finally, this three conference CD set, if you love end time prophecy, you're going to love this. A rabbi looks at the last days. There are three speakers on here. Rabbi Jonathan Burness talking about the end time prophecy signs that are happening right now in regard to Israel. The second speaker on here is a gentleman by the name of Waalid Shobat, a former Palestinian terrorist who's got a price on his head. He ended up giving his life to Christ. And he tells you in here about what Islam truly believes. And I'm the third speaker on here talking about what the church has to do in these last days to bring the gospel to Jewish people to usher in the return of Christ. So try and pick those up if you can. Thanks again for coming. And uh, I'm going to send you out with that blessing that I did last night. Y'all ready to receive it? From the book of Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And once again, I will say it over you in the English, and then I'll say it over you in the Hebrew. And Pastor Mike, thanks also again for opening up the sanctuary for this wonderful event uh, tonight. Don't forget, by the way, come back tomorrow night where we'll be talking about the role of Israel in end-time Bible prophecy. And so to each and every one tonight who's come, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord our God lift up his countenance upon you. And may he grant you his peace. And in the Hebrew, it sounds this way. And all of God's people said, get home safe. I'll see you here tomorrow night, same time. God bless you, everybody. Thanks for Don't coming. forget to stop by the Promise FM table as well. I did, forgot to introduce Pat Scott. Pat Scott is oh, the, CEO, the executive director of Promise FM. They're Praise helping the us Lord. sponsor this, and so thank them. And uh, you. we'll see you tomorrow night. Tonight. Thank you. Amen. <laughs>